1: Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. This is episode 175. We're talking about energy intake, a.k.a. how many calories do you need? And uh, what do like calories? What do?
0: But anyway, that's a good. Yes, that works.
1: (laughs) Uh, What's going on, man? How are you doing?
0: uh i'm doing okay Uh, i think we might have skipped a week there but uh in between since the last episode been continuing to coordinate this move and uh training and working in the hospital this week and all kinds of stuff going on at the moment on my end but
1: we're getting by yeah yeah, i think it's okay if we take a two-week break that's what we took two weeks off we had you know look we we, we work for 50 weeks we got a two-week vacation built into our podcast package (laughs) uh you know and we're back. We're back in action. Um, Yeah, we usually try to put out something every week. Uh, had to take a few weeks off due to some other um, job-related stuff. And uh, yeah, but we're back. We plan on keep pumping out these episodes. And speaking of which, we're trying to bring on a few uh, highly curated, highly on-brand people within the industry uh, to help sponsor the show. So basically, not bring them on as like hosts, but bring them on as sponsors. Thing is, I do all of the editing. All of the coordination, all, you know, this is like a one-man band. Austin hops on and brings his expertise. But in order to, like, keep this thing rolling, we're going to need to outsource some of the editing, some of the production stuff. And so we thought, hey, if we get a few, like, sponsors for the show, we can we can cover that. Otherwise, you know, just hemorrhaging time and and money. And so what we need from you guys, because we're getting, you know, 30, 40 plus thousand downloads a week. We need, we need some information. We're going to put out a survey. The link is in the description below. So if you listen to our podcast, you like our podcast, even if you don't like it, but you still listen to it, just click on the survey, fill it out. Uh, that way it helps us, uh, you know, get some of these, get some of these sponsors. We're not going to have a long ad read at the beginning of the show or the end of the show or in the middle. Of sh- We're not going to do that. It's going to be like two or three, uh, you know, organizations that we, uh, are already like invested in. We like them. All right. We know that they're putting out good stuff. So there's no reads for like electrolyte supplements or like CBD <laughs> salve or whatever, but you know um, some brands that we're either already using or already, you know, kind of uh, recommending and uh, yeah, sponsor our show and help offload some of these responsibilities so we can keep focusing on the content rather than, you know, recording, editing, all this other sort of stuff. Otherwise, otherwise it's going to be you, Austin, you're going to be sitting here with Adobe audition editing okay. stuff. So,
0: yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that it, people probably don't recognize how much work goes into actually producing a decent quality episode. Like it's easy to get on and just babble about all kinds of stuff. But if you want to, you know, have it be at least somewhat refined if it's not going to be fully scripted, which some of the best, you know, well-produced podcasts out there are like scripted start to finish, which is probably not something that's uh, exactly feasible for us in, in many uh, situations. But for something to be refined and deliver a message effectively and and uh, kind of hit the, hit the high points that we want to hit when we're delivering some of this information, um, it does take a fair amount of work, and so to have that fair amount of work that is uh, not ever going to change, and then uh, tack onto that a whole bunch of additional editing and production, and you know all the other stuff that that you do on on the other side of that is a fairly substantial uh, demand on on time and effort and energy and things like that. So, um, getting some assistance with that, I agree, it would help us uh, fo- put more focus on you know where our I suppose where our expertise is is best utilized.
1: Yeah, it's better if we get to focus on. The content rather than the production quality and let the experts in production quality do that. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's a long lead into our, our ask, which is to click on the survey link in the description below, uh, answer some questions, and uh, that'll help us, uh, you know, track down some some sponsors that uh, won't annoy the crap out of you or us uh, at the beginning of the show. So, anyway, uh, other things, other announcements. We got new shirts available on the website right now. They are uh, meat version 2.0 shirts. Now, speaking of meats, I got a meat coming up. We'll talk about that here in a second. I feel like the news just broke to the people who are invested in you know what's going on training wise. But yeah, they have some new uh, shirts that are uh, specific for a powerlifting competition. They've got the logo uh, just under the collar on the front and rear. So it says Barbell Medicine on the front, stronger together on the back, on the sleeve. It's the BBM logo. It looks really fresh under a singlet. But, but I've worn them sand singlet and people are like, Hmm, that shirt slaps. So yeah, we got those. Nice. Yeah. We've got, uh, some of the new, uh, stronger together shirts. That's all available on the website. Uh, still have our lift for life, uh, charity shirt available. few of those left. So check that uh, out, the merch on the website. Um, and then last but not least, we've still got, still got our app. Our app is freely available for download on the Apple app store. Uh, our latest update well, we got two latest updates. One update, you get a free the free first week of any of our templates on there. If you're deciding between should I run power building one, strength one, endurance one, or something more advanced than that, you can check out the first week for free on the app. We're not even gonna ask you for a credit card. Like you just you can just do the first week. And then at the end, if you want to you know, continue on, well, then you can decide to, uh, to enter in some of your information and, and, and buy the, uh, buy the template. Um, also we're updating all of our rehab templates, the new hip rehab templates up the shoulder rehab template is up, uh, the knee and low back one should be up very shortly. Um, I'm not sure if they're uploaded into the app. We did considerable amounts of updates on those apps, but they're, they're available on the website. Uh, and then the the last app update, this one's really cool. It's like a template picker algorithm. So I went into the matrix that is my template brain. <laughs> I, 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 uh, ferreted out an algorithm on like how I would direct somebody to pick a template based on some responses to questions. How often do you want to train? How much training history do you have? What are your goals? Um, things of that nature. And then, uh, so yeah, it gives the top three recommendations, just like you were having coffee with me. And, uh, that's what I would do. So all that's available on the app. Really excited for the latest updates should be there. I get confused because what happens with the app is you like make an update and you submit it to Apple. And then they're like, it's under review. And then they're like, it's good to go. And I'm like, wait, does that mean the app is live? Like it's the update is live or like, is there another update on top of the update? It's like exhibit, you know, yo dog, I heard you like updates. So we're going to put updates on your updates. I don't know. So we'll see. Uh, other than that, I think that's all I got for announcements. Uh, you want to talk about training for a little bit, you know, because people are interested, I guess. I don't know if they are. I, I don't know <laughs> if they are, that they are, but, you know, invariably, whenever we get on podcast, we want to talk about training. This is the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We're going to talk about barbells for a minute. Yeah, I have a, I have a meet coming up on uh, Saturday. So, this is, yeah, so a couple of days. This should go up on Wednesday. Uh So, yeah, f- you know, four days later, three days later, I'll be uh, competing. I'd signed up for this meet after I came back from the adductor tear. Like, I was, like, pretty much back to hundred percent or at least close enough to not really notice it and I was like oh I'll sign up for a meet and then like a month later I dislocated my shoulder and I was like damn it but in, in any case I kept training and uh, I made like this kind of deal with myself if I could, was getting closer to a 400 pound bench that I, I would just do the meet regardless and for whatever reason training is like really good I'm the lightest I've been in the last eight months plus um, I'm doing the most conditioning I've probably ever done, you know, since I've been lifting weights and all my numbers and I'm squatting with the bar an inch and a half higher. So it's weird that I'm squatting without hamstrings now, <laughs> it's effectively a high bar, high bar squat, uh, and self lift off, no wrist wrap. I mean, a lot of stuff in my tra- training has just been tweaked a little bit. And I think it's cause I go into training sessions and I'm just like, I'm going to take what's there for the day. I'm not too invested in this because I'm not putting any pressure on myself. And I think a lot of that has to do with the injury and yeah. the injuries. Right. It's just like, yeah, I, I could put all this pressure and all these expectations. But since I'm coming back from those, they've been really kind of wiped out. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to the meet. I, I probably won't set a PR meet total all time just because I'm not using knee wraps, but we're going to get close. We're going to get yeah. close.
0: Yeah. I mean, we had had this conversation and, 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 you know, it's funny that the way you describe that approach to training, it's like kind of like what we recommend for people in general and what we try to do. But of course, it's always easier said than done, especially when you, you know, care about what you're doing, you care about your performance and you want to see the numbers go up. It's easier said than done to just be like, yeah, I'm going to take what what's there today and uh, not nudge things ever, ever higher, even when it may not be appropriate. But we talked a little bit about your training approach. And, you know, I remember, I don't know, uh, uh, this might've been, six weeks ago or something when we were starting to enter like the final stage towards this meet. And I was like, well, what if you ended up going to this meet and then just, you know, if, if necessary just work up and do like a a powerlifting meet at RPE eight or something, if you had to like, keep it pretty sub-maximal, just depending on how things felt your, I don't know, your shoulder or, or, or anything else that had maybe not, 200% 100 percent yet. But it seems like you said things are, are going really well. I still don't know whether you know, you're you're planning, it's probably going to be a, a game day kind uh, of call of how how high up you want to turn things. But I think that there's something to be said for when you've had a bit of time away from a powerlifting meet and get back into it, just putting up like, a solid performance, be it nine for nine or, you know, a, a total within some percentage that you deem, you know, acceptable of your, of your best or something like that. It's, it it can help psychologically. It can build momentum towards subsequent performances and get you, keep you excited about training, you know, on the other side of it too, instead of like building up so much hype and expectation for one meet. And then you get, you know, severe post-meet blues, or you have an incident (laughs) like your last meet and things like that. Yeah.
1: I mean, that was the thing. I just built up that last meet And I think, I think what begat that beget, that's a word like,
0: right. Probably, maybe,
1: (laughs) Uh, whatever you guys know what I was trying to say. Um, that training was going well before I had really signed up for that last meet. And so I like had these expectations, like I'm going to finally break my PR total. Like I'm going to do it. And then yeah, training went well enough until the very end where I got sick and whatever. And then ultimately tore my adductor. Um, yeah. I, I think that's just the difference. I have all these, this, this like historical, all these historical performances and I'm like, well, if I don't beat those, then why, why am I even sign up for the meets? It's not, I don't want to go to a meet and just like show up. But now it's kind of like, man, I haven't really been able to put up a total in like almost three years Yeah, uh, between the, the pandemic and then this last meet with the adductor. So I'm just like, one, I just want to go and have fun. Yeah, I, I am really having fun training. And if I put up my my expectations are that anything over 1700 is a win d- as a total uh and i think that's easily within reach on a, as far as a, a like a stretch goal i think anything in the 1750 to 1770 range would be like damn you done did it That's that's a good yeah. meet yeah. and my plan is to not push squats or bench only only because like what's the point i don't yeah. need to like i'm not going to win a national meet or like qualify for some next level this is literally just me showing up to some random gym in southern california yeah
0: and (laughs) and and picking up some metal
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so no i'm excited to compete it's gonna be fun i think yeah 280 190 330 would be great that would be my stretch goal but and i've hit all those in training within the last week and uh
0: what's the current conditioning looking like that you uh mentioned
1: yeah so uh three to four days a week i'm doing like steady state stuff usually it's either the uh two days like 30 minutes rp6 i'm either on the rower the uh or the or the station the bike either stationary or outside for that uh and then on weeks when i have uh and one of the sessions is a longer session like 90 minutes same thing rp6 and how i do that it's i'm staying in 120s to 130 beats per minute heart rate Um, and so the way I track progress is just like, what's my pace. Mm -hmm. If I can maintain a faster pace, you know, with a heart rate being capped, that's just like, cool. Your, your submaximal aerobic capacity is, is going up. So that's three to four days a week of that. And then I'll do two days per week of intervals. One's going to be aerobic intervals. So like one to one or one to two work to rest ratio. So minute on minute off, something like that, a minute on two minutes off or two minutes on one minute, something like that. Uh, and usually I'll be between the ski erg and the rower for that. And then one day uh, is going to be anaerobic intervals. And that's just going to be one to four, one to five work to rest ratio. And I usually do that on the ski erg. And I've been really enjoying the ski erg because it allows me to like push my shoulder. In a yeah. way that's different from the gym, and so I, I, I don't know that it's therapeutic. Like, well, oh, it makes my shoulder feel better, but it certainly allows me to kind of like, yeah, not only are you gonna like lift a weight, but you're gonna like keep doing it over and over and over again in a dynamic position, and uh, I get a sick, sick pump from the ski erg on my tr- my arms. Oh my god! Like, if I was I I I, I you know you, you like having a pump, you walk around, you're like, hey, I'm uh, I'm all jacked right now. i i I, the bodybuilding thing i think the gene missed me like where i'm like "Eh, no whatever i can take or leave it but if i was into that i think i would do (laughs) instead of like pumping up in the pump up room i would just get a skier back there and like
0: (laughs) that's interesting i've never trained on a skier done all the other conditioning kind of modalities but not that one
1: yeah i was talking to derek he's like he's like one thing for people who are either can't bear weight or you know have other issues like some mobility needs for they can't cycle with high intensity or regularly they got a lower extremity injury whatever get them on a skier and have them go to town really lets them like just let loose pretty much. And I was like, huh. I didn't, I mean, that was, this was after the adductor thing, but I'm like, I wonder how that's going to feel on the shoulder. And yeah, it's been nice. Um, and I ultimately I'm just trying to get in better shape for motocross. I mean, that's the whole thing. Like I'm spending all this money, all this time, like practicing, trying to get back into racing. And it's not that I can't just go ride around. That's, but that's not the point. I can't ride at a high level for an extended period of time without this conditioning base that I've, don't have right now. Yeah. And so and people are like, well, aren't you afraid of like you're gonna you're losing gains? I'm like, no.
0: Doesn't seem to be happening.
1: No, but I didn't start here. I started with three days a week at 30 minutes at RP six. And I yeah. will tell you that the pace that I was maintaining on both the rower and the my my bike was much slower. So for example, I was at like two forty on a five so two minutes and forty seconds on the bike for uh I think it's at per thousand meters or whatever the the thing says. And now I'm at two twenty. And, but the heart rate is the same. So it's like, wow, you got way better. The wildest thing is in the gym though. I get done with like a heavy set and yeah, you're out of breath. Same, same as normal, you know? And then my heart rate's back under, you know, 90 within 60 seconds. Like I, awesome. I, I did my sink, my last warm up. I did a 265 kilo squat. This is good about like my opener or something like that. And I did it, my heart rate when I was sitting there, last time I looked at it before I walked up to the bar, it was 81. And I was like, that's not resting, obviously, but you know, to be in yeah. the gym and just like sure. chilling. I don't know. Interesting so, stuff, man. That's cool. I appreciate that you're you're okay with not being strong for another f- three or four days because <laughs> the balance <laughs> of power, uh, you know, <laughs> is it in my favor to, right now. It tends
0: to swing pretty dramatically, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. Have we ever been strong at the same time?
0: I don't know. I've tried to think about this. Maybe on like certain lifts, but across the board, I don't think so.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I, we never have done the same meet together, right? right. Yeah. And then we've never been pre- so. There's probably some like recall bias. We're like, well, oh, you know, you weren't strong then when I was prepping for this meet, and vice versa. But yeah, it is. If you're wondering like why we make that joke, I, it, it is interesting that only one of us is strong at it one time. <laughs> it's like it's like are Austin and Jordan the same person? I've never seen them both in the same room. Like. Eh, <laughs> So anyway, all right. Well, the next podcast, we'll have a meat recap and let's, uh, I'm, you know, I think it's going to be positive. I mean, either way, like I said, I'm going to have fun and I have, I don't think there's likely to be any RP 10 efforts except for maybe the third deadlift if I want to go full send for something.
0: Yeah. And at that point, you know, why not?
1: Yeah. You know, I've never gone nine for nine.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I historically have made like really large jumps to my first and my second deadlift. And then at yeah. that point, it's like,
0: You're uh, kind of fried uh, you now.
1: of yeah, <laughs> it just took a 40 kilo jump anyway. All right. So we're going to hop into this uh, podcast topic for today. We're going to try to make this as practical as possible. We'll also giving you guys a good uh, hefty dose of knowledge for your brain hole. I got a couple DMs unrelated Last, but they, but they were the same question effectively. They're like, how do I figure out how many calories I need per day? And this is not a unique question. We, I get this off all the time, but since these both happen in close proximity to each other, and I'm just like, we don't really have a good resource for this out there. Uh, I figure we do a podcast. So this is a question, um, that a lot of you listening to are probably like, hmm, yeah, I would want to know that. And, uh, if you want to save yourself the trouble, I'll just, I'll cut to the good part uh there are ways to calculate this none of them great you probably don't need to actually know this in order to make changes in your behaviors that would benefit your health your performance etc but if you want to know all the stuff in the middle listen on <laughs> all right so first off what is a calorie so we have to talk about energy first uh, energy is the capacity to do work on or provide heat to an object calories are the unit of measurement used to measure energy much in the same way seconds are used to measure time and kilograms are used to measure mass so when someone asks is a calorie a calorie the answer is unequivocally yes it's just a unit of measurement Uh, technically speaking a calorie with a lowercase c is the amount of energy required to raise the temperature of one gram of water by one degree celsius our food contains thousands of times more energy than this. So rather than use the term kilocalories, when measuring energy in food, the term has been abbreviated as calories with an uppercase C. So one calorie with the uppercase C is equivalent to one kilocalorie or a thousand calories with a uh, lowercase C. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion about this. So in the 1950s, when the SI system um, introduced the term joules to measure energy, Basically, nutritional science and researchers stopped using calories. Calories have been around since the 19th, you know, 19th century, the early 1800s, mid 1800s when this kind of came into the lexicon. But as of in the 1950s, SI, the SI system was introduced and everybody else picked up jewels. But, uh, you know, public health kind of public health. And they were like, well, we can't really ask the public to understand a new term. So we're just going to stick with calories. But not the one with the lowercase C. We're gonna do the one with the uppercase C. It which is even crazier because when you look at actually like public statements or public health documents, even like the the public health professionals can't keep these things straight. They'll say calories with an uppercase C in one sentence and calories with a lowercase C in the next sentence and use kilocalories throughout the doc. It's like just use the same word the whole time. Just stick with one. But in any case, long and short of it is that when you see calories on your food label, if you're in the United States, uppercase C, uppercase C,
0: and in in in, in Europe they actually do use the joules on their label.
1: Yeah, because right. they smart like that. And we're just yeah, like, right. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. Yeah, uh, super interesting. If you want to get into the history of this, I've, I've linked uh, a couple resources in the description below. One is by James Hargrove. Does the history of food energy units suggest a solution to calorie confusion? Um, also, there's another text called the history of the calorie and nutrition. If you want to go back into like French chemists, Lavoisier, and then Carnot, etc cetera, etc cetera, who's not french but in any case we're going way back you can read that if you just want to move on with your life and take what i said at face value listen on <laughs> all right so we've talked about what a calorie is uh and how this relates to the current discussion is to do with energy balance so if you think back to your uh high school uh chemistry class you learn about thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics is the law of energy conservation. So energy cannot be created or destroyed, only transformed. With respect to human nutrition, this law means that any change to the body's energy stores, the body stores energy as fat, carbohydrates, you may have heard this as glycogen, muscle glycogen, liver glycogen, et cetera. And also protein, protein is in the muscle tissues and all your soft tissues that make up your organs, et cetera. So that's how your body stores energy. So the law of energy conservation means that any change to the body's energy stores, that's fat, carbohydrate, and protein is equal to the energy consumed from food minus the energy expended to do whatever the body needs to do, whether that be maintain its function, be active, etc. So energy balance refers to the relationship between energy intake and energy expenditure. So if you are consuming more energy than you're expanding, you're in a positive energy balance. If you're consuming less energy than you're expanding, you're in a negative energy balance. That's the whole relationship. I'm sure, Austin, when you're counseling patients, that's how you start off the
0: nutrition recommendation. You just talk about energy balance and the law of thermodynamics. I uh, w- write out the write out the math, tell them to eat less, move more, and kick them out the door.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's simple. Because if they just knew, yeah, they right. would cl- they would change their behaviors. Yeah. So so again, all of this stuff is in the middle, like uh, of stuff that you don't really need to know. But if you're trying to like have a higher level discussion about this, it's a fun- fundamental knowledge you must possess to really discuss this. But not to make a healthy or performance enhancing behavioral change. This is just the nuts and bolts, the weeds, if you will. Okay. So let's start out. We're going to talk about energy intake and energy expenditure. Let's start out with energy intake. So energy intake refers to all calorie containing items consumed in a given period of time, usually a day by convention, but it could be a week, could be a month, et cetera. So this includes protein, carbohydrates, and fats primarily, and also alcohol could be a small amount of alcohol. If you drink a small amount of alcohol, could be a large amount uh, if you drink a large amount of alcohol. Um, interestingly, net absorption. So energy from these foods may vary. Uh, fecal losses vary anywhere between two to 10%. And this is dynamic two to 10% of energy intake. So that, what that means is if you're eating 3000 calories a day, you could be losing upwards of 200, up close to 300 calories from your food due to fecal losses. Um, so for example, there were overfeeding studies when they're feeding people more calories than they need to maintain their body weight. Uh, in these overfeeding studies, they show significant variability between individuals and how efficiently food is absorbed from the gastrointestinal tract. So small intestine primarily, Uh, this sort of, uh, efficiency, uh, relationship is known as the fractional energy absorption or FEA, uh, healthy individuals on average absorb about 90 to 95% of the energy contained within food. Uh, the rest being lost in feces and urine, mostly feces, uh, some, some in the urine, Uh, Controlled feeding studies, however, have shown that individuals' energy absorption can range from 80 to 95%. In these overfeeding studies, uh, there seems to be an increase in the fraction of energy lost in the feces and urine. So you give people more calories, they seem to lose more of it, Um, it, less of it seems to be absorbed, although that is not standard across the board. Some people maintain the same amount of absorption, and other people uh, seem to lose more energy um get less efficient. So if you were thinking like hmm maybe there's a difference between people who readily gain weight versus people who are resistant to gaining weight, this may be a source of some of that variation. Uh, I've linked the study uh which is from 2020 in the description below.
0: This is that's kind of a that's that is a pretty interesting and I think underappreciated topic and and part of that variation in absorption is as you said in healthy individuals. If you have somebody who has some type of gastrointestinal like disease state that limits their ability to absorb calories. This is how a lot of these kind of malnourished states end up appearing in people who either have, you know, uh, um, pancreatic insufficiency, their pancreas isn't able to function enough to help them digest and then subsequently absorb the food they take, or if they have like various kinds of inflammatory bowel diseases, or if they've had parts of their intestine cut out for some reason, it's all kind of the same ultimate physiology here. And, and the reason this is worth pointing out is because, you know, when you mention energy balance and the energy intake or, quote unquote, calories in and energy expenditure, quote unquote, calories out, and people will say, well, it's not as simple as, as the uh, uh, calories in than calories out. Um, but this is actually a situation where the calories in is not necessarily being reflected by the calories that the person puts in their mouth when they eat, but rather the calories that are ultimately absorbed into the body and metabolized, that's kind of what determines the, the calories in this concept of losing energy in the stool does not like violate that overall relationship of energy balance, or of the the energy intake and and expenditure, because intake is not just what goes in the mouth, but actually what ends up also getting absorbed and metabolized and and to energy stores and things like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, people are like, Oh, it's not just as simple as calories in calories out. I'm like, uh, well, it is. But if you think that calories in versus calories out is simple, I implore you to dig further because yeah. it's very complicated. Both of those, the sides of the equation, if you will, are dynamic. Um, the other thing I'll say, you know, when you have people with these bowel diseases, uh, you know, like sprue celiac comes to, comes to mind, um, which is not technically an IBD, but you know, when people have that autoimmune disease, the, one of the symptoms is that they lose weight. They lose weight because they're not absorbing the food that they're putting in their mouth. Uh, and you know, principally that's just due to reaction to gluten or other, uh, similar proteins that tend to be pro-inflammatory and messes with their gut. And so when they eliminate gluten from their diet, what happens? They gain weight. The idea of like going gluten free to be like, as like a weight loss promoting diet, like nah, not the move, not the move (laughs) as, uh, yeah, somebody would say. So in any case, you you basically have the food that goes in the mouth. That's one factor. And then the food that gets absorbed and metabolized. And so the, the metabolizable energy is the difference between the amount of energy you ingest that goes in the mouth and the amount of energy that's lost in the feces and urine. Uh, usually per gram of food, it's four calories, the capital C for protein, four calories for every gram of carbohydrates and nine calories for every gram of fat. Um, also, with respect to energy intake, food intake varies significantly between individuals and among individuals at a given meal, meaning that people are eating different sized meals at breakfast, lunch, dinner, or a snack, if they're following that typical pattern. Um, and uh, that, that's not only like from day to day in a single individual, but also between individuals. However, there's less variability over a day in total amount of energy intake consumed. Um, usually it's because we compensate. So what that means, if you have a big breakfast, you're like, yo, we're going out, it's breakfast time. And you go to, I mean, I'm going to Denny's. That's me. <laughs> I'm having a moons over Miami. I'm crushing that thing. Like, don't judge me. That's what I want. The subsequent meals, I'm going to eat less as a compensatory sort of response. This doesn't really happen, however, if a lot of the energy that you take in comes from sugar-sweetened beverages. So soda, for example, or alcohol, both of those things, liquid calories in particular tend to be, uh, tend to stimulate less of that compensatory response, meaning that you're going to eat in this case, drink more calories, but you're not going to make up for it. You're not going to make up for it by eating less later in the day. And just to, um,
0: just to, just to be clear, cause uh, you didn't explicitly point it out, but when you said that you would compensate by eating less at subsequent meals, uh, lots of people might assume that that means that because you are lean and jacked, that you are doing that, uh, you know, deliberately or intentionally, you're consciously choosing to do that. The point nope. here is that when, when people are observed in these kind of settings, that compensation, that compensatory behavior, again, assuming that the extra calories are not coming from sodas and other sugar sweetened drinks, if it's coming from like food sources, um, then people tend to spontaneously eat less, uh, calories or energy. Over the course of the the rest of the day, such that from on a day to day basis, their overall calorie intake tends to, you know, more or less kind of even out.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point, because effectively the the food, the energy intake is a function of the balance between hunger and satiety and a given environment. So the sensations and behaviors associated with energy intake result from biological, psychological, social and environmental inputs that when integrated influence hunger and feelings of fullness which we call satiety so effectively if you're really really hungry you're experiencing that that sensation and you're in a food environment that is replete with very tasty snacks these tend to be ultra processed hyper palatable which is a fancy way of saying very very tasty that are energy dense they contain a lot of calories uh good luck it's not It's. i'm not saying that you have no control but less control that you think because a lot of these behaviors are automatic. They they happen, as Austin said in our, one of our previous YouTube videos, they happen at a subcortical level. You're not necessarily aware of what's going
0: on and you're making these automatic behaviors. And and arguably, the more automatic the behavior is going to be, uh, the more conscious effort it would require to override that. And the amount of conscious kind of effort-based resources people have available to like continuously override those automatic behaviors, you'll run out. Uh, you'll run out pretty quick. Like if you were again completely surrounded, you were in a, you're you're really into candy, and you're in a candy store as, as an example. It'll take a lot of conscious effort to go, you know, one meal, two meals, three meals all day, sticking to, you know, a, a quote unquote better diet that you're wanting to stick to, and not uh, uh, have some of that candy as as in in that example um and so this will this will this idea of like automatic eating behaviors and the subcortical stuff the the deeper not conscious you know quote unquote rational parts of our brains that are driving a lot of these behaviors this will come back and be pretty important later
1: yeah yep but if you're wondering overall like what's the energy intake look like for uh people in the united states an interesting finding is that it's it's Technically gone down, if you look at the data that we actually have. So the most recent data we have on this, um, this is based on nine national surveys in the United States, with about 64,000 adults. So from 1971 to 1975, it was about 1955 calories per day. That was the average intake. Uh, from 2003 to 2004, it was 2200, uh, sorry, 2269 calories per day. So it went up a little bit in that interval. But then in 2009 to 2010, it went back down to 2195 calories per day. Now, there's some problems here with, you know, somebody in the in the our listening audience is like, well, how did they measure the intake? That's a great question. So they're using dietary recalls that in 2003 to two, and 2004, in 2009 and 2010 were basically the same. They're a computer-assisted dietary interview system, so people like click on foods they normally eat and then guess the size. Uh, they do typically under-report by 10%, but the variance is not different in that time interval. What I mean is that both sets of data are under-reporting by about the same amount. Um, the interesting thing with under-reporting, though, is this does not seem to be the same across individuals with different levels of body fat. So people who have what a quote unquote normal BMI uh so you know between 18.5 and 25 uh tend to underreport their uh energy intake per day by about 10%. It's the number you'll find most often in the literature, but individuals with BMIs greater than 30 tend to underreport their intake by 20 to 31% on average, which is uh, a significant difference. And so you might be thinking based on that, you're like if these people just knew how much they were supposed to eat, if they just knew how much they were supposed to eat, we could we could solve this obesity epidemic. We could we would just tell them how much they're supposed to eat and then they would eat it and then we'd be out of this uh, more on that to come. But but hold that thought. Hold that thought. Uh Also, if you were wondering on children, like what does their average calorie intake look like? Uh Yeah. So from 1999 to 2010, it decreased on average from 2,258 calories to 2,100 calories in boys. A similar size decrease was also seen in women, uh, but the uh girls in this case, um, but it was uh less absolute energy. I think it was from 1,800 down to 1,700 and change. So when people are like, energy intake is going up, we're eating more than ever. Oh. Uh, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if our actual energy intake is going up compared to the early two thousands and and mid two thousands. And that, that some of that may be due to, you know, like obesity levels are leveling off um, a little bit. Uh, And some of that may be due to reporting issues, but I don't know. Austin, what's your take on that? Do you think we're eating more more now than ever, or do you think it's about the same or what?
0: Uh, I guess my initial thought is, I don't know how useful having like one average calorie intake estimate for the population is in general. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. It's like, whatever th- this means, it, 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 it's not especially informative as far as like what we should do with, with people either at a population level or on an individual level. Um, ultimately, you know, those individuals who are either at risk of developing obesity or who already have obesity, like we kind of know, and we're having, we are generating an, a, an increasing number of tools that we can use to help manage those conditions or mitigate their risk of progression and things like that. Um, The, uh, the factors in the social environment and food system and things like that, that, that drive uh, a lot of this, again, from this like kind of automatic eating behavior standpoint, given what surrounds us all the time, that's a much tougher nut to crack. And that's something we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to, but um, insofar as obesity rates are increasing, then for those who are developing obesity, they are, you know, consuming uh, uh, more calories. Uh, but again, I don't know how much I care about like an average calorie intake for the whole population.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, it all it's giving you a snapshot. It's kind of yeah. like the, the uh, like sugar intake, for example, has actually gone down in the last yeah. few decades because yeah. people want to blame sugar for
0: the obesity epidemic. And it's like, there's been some, I guess, I mean, it's, To the extent that that's a good thing, which I I would not dispute that it probably is, Uh, I wouldn't blame all of obesity on it. Um, I think that that's been the result of some effective kind of public messaging campaigns. I know that in like the pediatric world, even when both of us were like going through med school and doing pediatrics rotations and clinic and stuff, everybody was like really hammering like, you know, are you you giving your kids a bunch of fruit juices and things like that and trying to really aggressively decrease that. And that was, you know, 10 years ago. So um, I think that we're hopefully seeing some of the effects of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you ask people how they... You know what's the most commonly consumed fruit that they have? It's mostly fruit juice. You know, just like the most commonly consumed vegetables, potato chip. And you're like, <laughs> dang it, we're missing it. But but the, the sugar thing shouldn't you know be in you know entirely implausible because the most consumed foods are not they're not like just raw sugar or like you know super sweet things. What they are are a combination of a lot of dietary fat and sugar and salt together and it's like yeah because those are the tasty things
0: yeah Yeah. there aren't people sitting at home throwing down spoonfuls spoonfuls of sugar
1: (laughs) do you remember this is our first seminar ever we're in san antonio and and i had never seen this before in my life those haribo like gummy worm things yeah yeah. there was a dude there just (laughs) crushing them and i'm like bro that's like straight up sugar just like straight up I anyway. if had,
0: I mean, maybe if you had the sugar-free kind. Although I've heard the reputation of those. Uh, that's what I'm I saying. Famous for their Amazon reviews causing uh, <laughs> os- osmotic diarrhea.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, if these are the sugar-free ones, we're not going to see this dude on day two. <laughs> He's gonna be. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all right. So that's energy intake in a nutshell. To recap, energy intake is all the foods that you take in um, over a set period of time. Usually, it's a, in a given day. A lot of the behaviors that drive energy intake are automatic and relationship to biological psychological social and environmental inputs that are integrated together uh, and when i say automatic i just mean they're happening they're they're less conscious uh, than you would otherwise expect them to be and so the idea that you're just going to overcome you're going to use willpower do this, all this other stuff is probably not a suitable long-term strategy um for sustainable weight change okay energy expenditure So this is typically referred to as total daily energy expenditure or TDEE, the total amount of calories that are used or in many cases referred to as burned per day. The three major components of total daily energy expenditure are one, resting energy expenditure. Uh, to diet diet-induced energy expenditure, and three, activity-induced energy expenditure. So we'll talk about all three. So resting energy expenditure, this is AKA the resting metabolic rate. Resting metabolic rate is often com- uh, confused with the basal metabolic rate. They're pretty similar measures. Uh, the difference is that the resting, uh sorry, the difference is that the uh, basal metabolic rate requires a full 12-hour fast beforehand. So it's a little bit more, Uh, accurate and tends to be a little bit more precise. Uh, Whereas measures of the resting metabolic rate tend to be about 10% higher than the basal metabolic rate and account for about 60 to 80% of total daily energy expenditure. So all that is a fancy way of saying that BMR and RMR are basically measuring the same thing. Um, Just one uh, requires a little bit extra uh, step uh, to get a very precise um, value. Um, And in any case, the resting energy expenditure um, makes up, you know, close to two thirds to three fourths of your total daily energy expenditure. The main uh-huh. contributor here is your lean body mass. So if you're looking at like, what's the number one compi- uh, uh, contributor to my basal metabolic rate to my resting metabolic rate, however, you're going to measure it. Uh, it's your lean body mass, the more lean body mass you have, the higher your resting energy expenditure is. Um, uh, there is a large variability in energy expenditure from this resting energy expenditure, uh, upwards of 200. 300 calories that are really not explained by the amount of lean body mass between individuals. This is probably genetics. Uh,
0: Just so uh, just so everybody's on the same page who might be coming to the topic uh, to begin. Can you define lean body mass for them? So they know, Hey, if I want to increase my energy expenditure via increasing my resting metabolic rate via increasing my lean body mass, what should I be doing? What is lean body mass?
1: technically speaking, this is all mass of the body. That's not fat. Uh, So, but for, as far as the most modifiable component of that, it's going to be the skeletal muscle um, because you can gain muscle mass, uh, but technically includes, you know, things like tendons, ligaments, visceral organs. If you really wanted to like, I, I did think about this. So, you think about the most expensive tissues that you have, your, like brain, kidneys, liver, whatever. <laughs> so you're like, I could probably give myself like hepatomegaly just like get a huge liver and that's going to be super super expensive i'll lose some weight uh get a big old brain you know lose some some weight because my my resting bottom metabolic rate goes up um but yeah in the literature you'll see uh some people refer to this as fat free mass uh, and other uh researchers will call it lean body mass but when we're talking about lean body mass as the main contributor we're talking about muscle mass so if you want your resting metabolic rate to go up get more jacked Just like that. You just tell people gain muscle mass (laughs) and they'll do it. Uh, But in any case, between individuals, there's a, there's a, you know, fairly substantial uh, uh, variation in how much energy is expended. That's not really explained by how much lean body mass they're carrying. And we think is due to genetics. Um, Some people just
0: run hot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now we (laughs) should be clear (laughs) from a metabolic standpoint, but you know, when people are like, oh, I have a low, I have a low metabolism. That doesn't really seem to be the case with respect to predisposing folks to maintaining extra adipose tissue stores. So like maintaining obesity, you could have a situation where people have a slightly slower metabolism like on the order of a couple hundred calories and they would gain weight faster. But as far as maintaining that, it does not appear to be there does not appear to be a big like slow metabolism contribution to that. Um, So just some interesting nuance there. It may predispose you to like getting to that point. But as far as maintaining extra adipose tissue, mm, probably, probably not. Um, As far as what does what happens to your resting energy expenditure when your body weight changes. So changes in body weight produce changes in lean body mass levels, which in turn change. The amount of energy you expend at rest during periods of active weight loss. There's some evidence that some individuals' resting energy expenditure changes out of proportion to the change in lean body mass. So this would be like metabolic adaptation, if you will, or adaptive thermogenesis. Um, But these changes uh, are not only variable, but they tend to dissipate during periods of long-term weight maintenance. So uh, even as short as like four to six weeks after a weight loss phase. Uh, However, in some individuals. Um, this metabolic adaptation may defend against weight changes in the first place. So some people may like prefer their bodies may prefer to be carrying extra body fat, uh, this sort of maintenance of obesity, uh, which is another problem. It's just a more complex thing than like, just try eating less and moving more. There, there are multiple ways in which redundant systems within the body can foil your plan here. So that's resting energy expenditure. The next item here are, is uh, diet-induced energy expenditure. This is also referred to as TEF or the thermic effect of food. Uh, this describes the energy required to digest, absorb, transport, and store energy from food. One way to think about the thermic effect of food is that it represents the energy expenditure increase from baseline within the first three to four mu- uh, within the first three to four hours of eating a meal. In this view, the thermic effect of food represents a 10-15% to increase in energy expenditure after consuming a meal. This peaks about two hours before uh, gradually returning to baseline. In most nutrition studies, we assume this, like the total amount of calories burned in a given day from uh, diet-induced energy expenditure to be about 10% of the total energy intake. So if you're eating 3,000 calories a day, we assume this is 300 calories worth of energy uh, devoted towards the thermic effect of food, but there is substantial variation between individuals. And in the nutrition book, this is one of the sections that I like went to town on, uh, and I'm like not looking at it again because it just, when I read through it, I get sad for like how far down the rabbit hole I actually went. But there are studies showing the thermic effect of food changes as people age, when people exercise, how much lean body mass they're carrying, various genetic connections, et cetera. We assume it to be ten percent, but it could be as little as, you know, five or four percent in some folks and closer to twenty percent in other folks. We just average it out to be ten.
0: And all of this all of this impacts again that like kind of energy out or calories out or energy expenditure side of the equation that we don't directly measure on a person to person level, but this could be, again, just one of the many Pieces of this uh, energy balance sort of equation that could contribute to or explain the differences that two people might have in their experience in working through weight loss, where one person um, may have an easier time and another person may have a harder time, and the conclusion is not oh the, this whole idea of energy balance and calories you know consumed versus expended is irrelevant, but rather that uh, uh, different components of this kind of equation, this this balance. Uh, Setup are kind of more or less relevant for for each of these two different people in two different ways.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's unsatisfying to be like, yeah, we don't really know. But I'm waiting for like this doubly labeled carbon study where you put people in a metabolic ward and you feed them food that's been labeled, you know, in in a differential way. And it's like, yeah, so we can accurately measure your TEF under various conditions. Hasn't been done yet. Uh, in any case, so we had the resting energy expenditure, we have the diet induced energy expenditure. Now, finally, we have the activity induced energy expenditure, and this refers to the calories used during exercise and non-exercise activity. Uh, the calories, uh, the total amount of calories burned from exercise is termed the exercise activity thermogenesis or eat and the total amount of calories used from non-exercise activity is called non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT, NEAT is further broken down or categorized into voluntary behavioral activities such as walking, climbing stairs, household chores, et cetera, and also involuntary activities such as fidgeting, twitches, frequent standing, and other unconscious movements. Those are called spontaneous physical actions, SPA, if you will. In any case, this is the most variable component of total energy expenditure. So activity-induced exercise uh, energy expenditure is the most variable component of total daily energy expenditure is typically between 20 to 40 percent of total daily energy expenditure for most individuals um d- during weight loss it should be noted that formal exercise does not appear to like burn less calories so that's like a myth people are like well, i heard once i'm losing weight or when i'm losing weight i'm going to burn less calories from exercise that's not really the case but the non-exercise activity thermogenesis does appear to change based on additional biological and environmental factors. And this is not, you you know, uh, universal across the board. Some people, when they lose weight, their need actually increases. Some people, when they lose weight, their need uh, goes, goes down when they try to lose weight. And it's like people are defending or preserving uh, uh, against weight loss. And some those people may have a more difficult time losing weight. It's just yet another input that may be, Sabotaging somebody's uh, efforts to lose weight
0: yeah and and many of those uh kind of components of non exercise activity, not necessarily all of them but uh, but many of them are similarly not conscious, automatic, just like things that you know again that subcortical those subcortical areas of the brain can be like nah i'm not going to do this <laughs> yeah. right now for given. and so they 'll burn that many fewer calories because they're not doing that given task, uh, uh, whereas others again may have a different experience they may be less susceptible to that um, weight loss induced decrease in needs. Theirs orders may go up. And so again, like so much of this is driven by underlying biology and kind of like the, the cards that you were dealt uh, up front. Uh, many of which, most of which you did not choose.
1: You know, it grinds my gears. is When people talk about making conscious choices to increase their neat, they're like, Hey, you know, cause, cause what they read is an abstract somewhere. That's like neat, you know, changes in non-exercise activity thermogenesis may contribute to, you know, altered weight loss outcomes. You know, so the thought being like if if your energy expenditure from neat goes down while you're trying to lose weight, it's you know, sabotaging your uh your efforts to lose weight. And so if you could just if you could only just increase neat back up to a normal level, you would be successful. And so these people are like, you gotta jack up your neat, pump up your neat. And so what you should do to do that is go, is walk more. And you're like, that's not neat.
0: Just exercise.
1: That's exercise. <laughs> this is a conscious, like purpose-driven, locomotive, ex- it's exercise, dude. Like, uh, it's not yeah. neat. It's like, it, it. it's like telling yourself, hey, self, what I want you to do is I want you to subconsciously fidget more so you burn more energy. It's like, Bro, what? No, that's not, that's not something you have control over. Anyway, it describes my gears. People are like, increase your NEAT. I'm like, increase your intelligence. Why do you say that? Stop saying that. Okay, I'll get off my high horse. Let's summarize all the stuff we talked about today. Dr. B, what do you got for us?
0: Uh, well, you did go through some kind of preliminary definitions of the calorie as a unit of measure of energy. And so we kept using the the word energy frequently. Um, so when we talk about energy intake, we're talking about the calories that an individual consumes. Uh, In their diet, we talked about all the things that can regulate or influence um, uh, the amount of energy, i.e. calories that a person consumes in a given day. We talked a little bit about how people can compensate for overfeeding, how people don't compensate really well for uh, sugar sweetened uh, uh, kind of beverages a lot. Um, And this will become more relevant again later on. We also talked about variation when it comes to energy intake and how much people actually absorb, uh, which is not a massive fraction, but it's just a component of this overall kind of energy balance sort of uh, uh, equation. And it's worth worth pointing out and, and taking note of. So that was most of what we saw on the energy intake side. What do you think with respect to energy expenditure?
1: Yeah, energy expenditure, the three major components we covered. Uh, we talked about resting energy expenditure, diet related energy expenditure and activity related energy expenditure. All of these things have significant variation between individuals from the resting energy expenditure. The main contributor there is going to be lean body mass. So if you wanted to jack up your resting energy expenditure, you would get more jacked. Uh, the diet induced energy expenditure refers again to uh, the cost of digesting, metabolizing, absorbing, and storing food. And there's substantial variation there amongst individuals. This may change as people are trying to lose weight, gain weight, et cetera, and it's not going to change uniformly. So again, some people may be more resistant to weight change than others. And for activity-induced uh, energy expenditure, there's two principal contributors. One is going to be exercise-related. The other one's going to be non-exercise-related. Um, this is the most variable component of your day-to-day energy expenditure, how active you are. 20 to 40% of your total daily energy expenditure uh, uh, comes from activities. And To the extent that this changes as you change your weight, usually the energy expended um, during exercise doesn't change, but the uh, energy expended from non-exercise activity does change, but again, not uniformly across individuals. So the big take home for me from this is that, yeah, there are three components that contribute to energy expenditure, but there is a large inter-individual variation in how people regulate all this stuff. And we can't just say- Hey, you know your metabolism is this, and it's going to change this way if you gain weight, lose weight, try to, you know, what otherwise change your body composition because there, again, are these substantial differences between
0: folks that are, for the most part, not consciously chosen or determined for in the overwhelming majority of situations.
1: <laughs> yeah, yep. Which, uh, yeah, maybe unsatisfying for some, but but I think it opens the doorway to different useful solutions that we'll talk about on part two of this podcast coming up next week so for dr Baraki, i'm dr jordan feigenbaum this is the barbell medicine podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine thank you for listening again if you could fill out the survey it's linked in the description below all of the studies that we talked about today are also linked in the description below in addition to a link to our app it's free in the apple app store you can try out the first week of any of our templates uh, for free on the app uh, and check out our merch help support Barbell Medicine. We'll catch you here next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.